Thank you guys for that. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in that first chapter. We kind of come to a, <clears throat> the final part of the first section of the first chapter this morning. Um, we're also doing these on Sunday night. I want to tell you, since we are having dinner following the service this morning, number one, that you're welcome to stay for that. And number two, I think I promised the ladies that when we had dinner, there would be no Sunday night. So the bulletin says we're having Sunday night, but we're not going to have Sunday night because this is a Sunday dinner. And it was my fault for getting that mixed around. So excuse me for that. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're working uh, in verses 3 through 14 there, but today specifically 11 through 14, and most specifically, I think, just verse 13 today. But let's read verses 11 through 14. This is the culmination we've seen through this passage that we see the Father's work, the Son's work, and today the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies salvation to us right in our time and place. Verse 11, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of the salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, uh, Father, as these words settle in our ears this morning, and we've been working on this passage for several weeks now, I just pray that as we kind of come to this portion this morning, that you fill your people's hearts, that you go past my simple words and use that spirit that we possess, that indwelling truth teller, um, our paraclete, our helper, that you would just use in a mighty way your truth in our hearts this day. Fill us full of your love. Fill us full of your glory and the glorious works of your salvation. Father, may each person today understand that salvation. Uh, Father, if there's one here this morning, may they understand their need for that salvation who has not yet uh, repented of their sins and turned to Christ and Christ alone. For it's in his name today that we pray. Amen. And so this morning we come to the, um, to the final chronological, if you will, act of the gospel it's, as it comes down and is applied to man. And Paul has been giving us this glorious truth and he writes this epistle to the Ephesians that contains such heavenly perspective of salvation. We've said before that it's as if Paul had gone up into heaven and he's giving us God's vision of what salvation looks like. And I'm telling you time and time again, we get a bit jaded because of sin being in this world as we look back up to God and salvation. So it's nice to connect it from both directions like this. And Paul does that for us in the book of Ephesians. The biblical understanding is that it was planned before the foundation of the world as God's will to choose you among the elect to receive salvation. And then that salvation was accomplished in Christ at Calvary some 2,000 years ago, the redemption through his blood there in verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And it's brought to you by the revelatory work and witness of the Holy Spirit. 
On the day when you heard the word of truth, that gospel of your salvation, as it says there in verse 13, and understood it. For, for me, it was uh, first when I was a 12-year-old boy and again at age 26. Uh, but the day that you responded to faith is your day. The day that you understand that the Holy Spirit had worked in your heart and brought you to faith in the gospel, the good news of your salvation, even that faith with which you responded being as evidence of the work of the Spirit of God on your heart. Yes, even that faith was a gift and a work of the Holy Spirit. So today, as we focus on that application of so great a salvation, as it comes directly to man, as the grace of God at work in the power of the word of truth, you see that there in verse 13? That, that, that's, just a, that's just a magnificent hanging point for me. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard that, when it came as truth to you, that's where the Spirit works in power to convert your heart, convert the heart of the believer as he or she hears and responds to the gospel message, receiving that inheritance in Christ as a promise from God that will be with us until it's fulfilled in our sight on that day when we stand face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ in glory to the glory of God. So I want to make three points this morning, and they're rather technical, I'm afraid, this morning. I, I, I uh, kind of chose to be very technical this morning. It's the true word, the true work, the true witness. Do you see it there? The word of God is the true word. The true work is that you believed, and the true witness is that the Holy Spirit is now with you, has indwelled you, and has empowered you to do the work that God's called you to do. Let me say that again. The true word, that's the word of truth. The true work is that your heart was converted. We read that from Ezekiel 36. I love that passage. God literally, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and the Spirit worked to regenerate you, literally pulled out that heart of flesh and gave you a heart, or uh, pulled out the heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. And thus you being able with that work done, being done by the work of the Holy Spirit, able to believe and repent, believe in faith and repent. And that's the true work of the gospel. Uh, listen, the biggest gift of the gospel is belief in God. And that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that way we receive the true witness, the Holy Spirit, that witness that tells us it's going to be all right. The one that goes with us through the most difficult of times, right? It's the one that some people just let go and they say, I can't get through this. And other people say, you know what? No matter how hard it gets here, God's promises are God's promises and I'm going to make it through this day, right? The Holy Spirit grabs a hold of you and says, it's going to be okay. God has promised. Jesus has died. And the Lord will bring to fulfillment all of his promises in Jesus Christ. That, that indwelling, that, that strength that you get, that resolve that you summon up, is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's work on those. You want to write them down? True word, true work, true witness. True word, true work, true witness. All of those things brought to us by the working of God, working out salvation and bringing it to man, and then man working in salvation for the rest of his life in the world. First, the true word. It's the word of truth. It comes there in verse 13, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, as it says in Romans 10, 7. You heard the true word. Look at that in 13. In him, that's in Christ. 
Now, we've talked about being in Christ, that if you go back up there to verses 3 and 4, that we were placed in, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? You can't get out of that. God does that work. You weren't alive then. You couldn't do anything that recommended God, that God choose you over another person. It was a work of God, his sovereignty, to place you in Christ even before the foundation of the world. And then in Christ, as Christ came to die 2,000 years ago, that his blood would satisfy his own request for payment for your sins, and that that would be applied to you in the time and space in which you live through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Those are the things, those are the three steps, right? Do you see them in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14? God planned, the son, the son paid, and the Spirit applies, right? Came to you in your time. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and that word of truth comes by hearing and there's times that you heard the word of truth, you heard it over and over, and you didn't accept it as the word of truth. But what he's talking about here is it's a time that you heard the word of truth, and it moved in your heart in such a way that it became a word of truth. Right? Because there's plenty of people that know who Jesus is that don't believe his word. <laughs> he is the, uh, we have the inscripturated word, and John 1 would tell us that he is the living word. Why the word of truth? Why is the word of truth so important? First, because false doctrine has no power to save. Paul sends Timothy to fight just for the word of truth. First Timothy 3 through 6, he sends Timothy, literally young Timothy, off to Ephesus to do nothing but to contend for the truth because the truth is that important, because the truth is what saves us. It's that word of truth that you hear that converts you and if somebody is teaching false doctrine, the conversion cannot take place. Here we see it in 1 Timothy, verses 3 through 6. Let me read it to you, chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Paul writes, I want you to remain there at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I'll just tell you as a pastor, that's 98% of what I do is to refute false doctrine or to help somebody find the truth in the, in the passages of Scripture. That's 98% of what I do, I believe. It's what I teach on Sundays. It's what we had in Sunday school this morning. It's what I answer when I answer questions. But that is the most important job I feel like I can do is lead you to the truth of Scripture. So Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus, and he wants him to remain there and literally charge the persons that are teaching different doctrine. Why? That's the question that arises. He says, don't devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies. Because they, they promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. But certain persons, by swerving away from these, have wandered away into vain things, vain discussions. And that's what happens when false doctrine comes. It disbands unity. It makes us argue with one another. It keeps us from being saved. The aim of our charge is love, and doctrine brings love, and false doctrine cannot do that. Paul says, go there and teach them to quit teaching that false doctrine because it's not the true word. It promotes disorder, Paul says, and not stewardship. Stewardship and order, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Why peace? Because he wants us to live a peaceable life so every man can hear the word of God, right? And respond to the word of God so it can be taught. And false doctrine never gives any conviction of sin. 
because there's no work of the Spirit in it. The Spirit wrote our scriptures. The Spirit works in our scriptures. And if we don't teach the word of truth, there will be no work of the Spirit in the word. And it also destroys unity. Not too long ago, I was working with a First Baptist church where I used to live. And they had a great controversy. The Bible, see, it explicitly says in 1 Timothy uh, uh, 3 and Titus 1 that pastors are supposed to be men. But this church was allowing females, well, they didn't have a female pastor yet, but they were, they were getting there. And it caused a great controversy. People were up in arms because there was a great group of people there that loved the truth of God, and they knew what the truth of God said here. But yet there was some that were promoting this disorder. It wasn't a true word, and it made disunity within that church. And, beloved, this is the reason. False doctrine has no power. It, has, it only divides, and it keeps people from hearing the word of truth that can save their soul. And this is why Bible teachers are held to a higher standard. And that doesn't only include your pastor, but that includes anyone that may set to teach some truth from Scripture. It's specifically your pastor and your Sunday school teachers. But any time we take up the sword of God, we're to rightly handle the word of truth. Remind them of these things, Paul says, and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Time and time again, Paul says, if you don't handle scripture right, the word of truth, if you don't get that into people's ears so that they can hear what is true, it leads to ungodliness, not to not to more godliness, and, and I know that that kind of works in our heart in a difficult way because we want to be, we want to be good to people and, and, and we're to teach the truth in love, but beloved, we're to teach the truth because it's not loving to do anything different because it's the truth that saves and it's false doctrine that lead people away into ungodliness. And he says, by the way, in verse 17, that this is going to spread like gangrene. And then he gave some illustrations among Hymenaeus and Philetus. This has already, has already happened. So that's why the qualification of your pastor and elder and anybody that teaches must be able to teach. And that's why James says that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now I believe that this passage not only flows to Bible teachers, but because uh, of everything we teach needs to be according to truth, it also um, affords itself to our teachers in our schools, teaching young children. Why? Why must you get the truth? Because the Bible, even just in the reading, when I read those passages this morning, even just in the hearing of the reading of the words of Scripture, it requires each and every one of you today to give an answer to it. The Bible's the one book that you can read. I read pretty widely during the week, and now that my wife's gone for it, don't anybody tell her this? I know she's watching this morning, and we're going to bleep this part out. But when they're not with me, I read constantly. I love reading. And there's some books that, you know, it's okay if they make some mistakes in. But not the Bible. I don't have to answer to those books. I have to answer to anything that I hear in the Scripture. It demands for me an answer every time I read it, every time I focus on it, every time I pray about it. 
When you read your Bible, you make a decision. You either believe what you read there, and it's accounted to you as righteousness, or you disbelieve it, and you walk away and are not obedient to it, and it's counted to you as unrighteousness. It's a sin to not believe what you're reading in the Bible. That's why it's important that we handle it properly. Why? Because it's a gospel of your salvation in that truth. Paul says, you see it there in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What does the word gospel mean? That's the good news. It's good news to man because it speaks the truth of who man is. It's good news to man because it tells us who God is. And if you don't think deeply about these things, you're just going to skim over the top and find yourself one day in the pits of hell. Because you're responsible. You're responsible for your sin. God will hold you responsible for it. You will stand before Christ one day, and you will give an account. So the gospel of your salvation is good news because it tells you who God is. That he's the loving, merciful creator who created all that he created, and he gave it to man so that they could flourish. They could be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. I don't know about you this morning, but that sounds fun to me. I'm enjoying my part in that. But I can't enjoy that unless I understand the God who gave it to me and why he gave it to me and that he gave me the ability to enjoy it through salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, the problem is I was estranged from that God because of my sin. And I know, well, that doesn't sound like good news, Pastor. Are you going down the wrong path here? No, that's exactly good news. To know that you're estranged means means that you can correct that course in some way. To hear the gospel means that God's offering you a chance. To hear the gospel means that this God is merciful, he's loving, and he's long-suffering with me, to me specifically and to you as well. He's long-suffering and he sent his son to die on the cross so that I could have a payment for the penalty of my sin so that I could be redeemed by that blood and my sins and my trespasses, verse 7, could be forgiven and I could stand before that God and approach his throne boldly in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Hey, that's good news that I don't have to pay for my own sin, but that Jesus paid for my sin. Oh, and the side benefit is I'm going to live forever in paradise. Yeah, it's good news, even though it tells me that I'm a bad man. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's the gospel of your salvation you hear in the word of truth. And that's where it becomes when that word of truth meets the man. That's where it becomes a true work, right? True word, true work, true witness. The true work is the Holy Spirit's the true work in the word. That's why the word needs to be handled properly. I didn't write this word. Paul didn't write this. Peter didn't write this. They were moved by the Holy Spirit and wrote the words that that God exactly wanted us to have. Now, we see the mannerisms of Paul and Mark, and we can tell them apart by what we're reading, can't we? We know his encouragements specifically from Paul, even though they were through many tears and through beatings and sufferings. We know it's Paul. Intimately, we know Paul because of what he wrote, but it's exactly what God wanted us to have, and that's the true work of the Holy Spirit. It is that paraclete that helper, the one that Jesus said would lead us to all truth. We see in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 21, he says these things. For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. Why? 
because it wouldn't have saved you. It wouldn't have been the word of truth. And there's plenty of cleverly devised myths in this world if you want to read them. But none of them are going to lead you to the one true and holy God that can save your life in Jesus Christ. Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by that majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born out of heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. These men didn't make this truth up. This truth is directly off the lungs of God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit is the true work in the Word. The Holy Spirit works in the Word of Scripture. Listen to me, folks. This is why this is kind of technical, because you've got to get around. This is systematic theology. This is what the Bible says about why it's the Word of truth and why it's the good news of your salvation and why it brings you to believe, because the Spirit works there in those words. John 16, 7 through 9. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't, the helper will not come. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, he convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what's in the word of truth. Sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, sin, my own sin. It convicts me of my own sin. And though that's painful, I see the righteousness of Christ and I see God's total plan to, for the foundation of the world to shed the blood of his son to pay the payment for my sins. It, it shows me the righteousness of God's plan beginning to end and it also shows me my unrighteousness and I stand in judgment. So it's only in the word of God will I get that. Man's always going to try to placate me in my sin. Satan did that to Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. Oh, Surely you won't die, for God knows that in the day of you eat of it, you'll know good and evil, just as he does. To do the true work, it has to be the word of truth, because this is where the Holy Spirit works. Natural man cannot do these things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 explains it specifically, and the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. How many times have you heard somebody say, when I read my Bible, I don't get it? Because if they don't have the work of the Spirit in them, they can't. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're difficult. They're offensive, right? For they are folly to him. That word in the Greek, folly, is morose, where we get the word moron, moronic. I don't know why those two fit together so well, but they do, right? It's folly to the unbeliever. It's foolishness. It's morose. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Man can't get this. It has to come through the work of the Spirit. That's why it has to be the Word. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 10 through 13. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the great depths of who God is. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. 
So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Holy Spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. They can't be taught by human wisdom. No matter how good of a teacher I am intellectually, I can't bring you to a full understanding of what God has done without the Holy Spirit's work. They're not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So how do those two come together, right? Doctrine and preaching leading to conviction of sin leads to conversion. Uh, in the proclamation of the true word, and that true work is done, it's accomplished. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, listen, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Man, that's more and more folly, and that's that same word, by the way. Paul loves to use that word morose. That folly just keeps getting bigger in the eyes of our culture today, doesn't it? Why go listen to a preacher? Really? Listen to a man give a 40-minute lecture from the Bible? What good could that ever do? Let me tell you what good it does. There's power in the word of God. The power of the Holy Spirit to convert the man from death to life. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not go God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. This is why the word has to be true. This is why the preacher is doubly accountable. This is why the teacher of the word of God is held to a higher standard because it's in those words. It's not the preaching that works, as H.B. Charles wrote. It's not the preaching that works. It's the reason the word, excuse me, let me read it for you specifically. Our preaching is not the reason the word works. The work is the reason our preaching works. There, I got it. Let me read it again. The word, our preaching is not the reason the word works. The word is the reason our preaching works. Because it's in the proclamation of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, sin is convicted, righteousness is understood, and judgment is hanging. Titus 3.5 brings it all together. It says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me if you have your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 this morning just for a moment. I want to look at this passage in Acts chapter 13 because I think more specifically it brings this all together. Verses 42 through 48. Paul had been there and he'd been preaching and the people begged for more of his preaching. They had a hunger for the truth of God. The whole city comes together to hear the truth of God. Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 48. As they went out, the people begged these things might be told to them the next Sabbath day. Verse 43, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Keep preaching to us. Keep telling us more of this truth. Give us more of this word. It's doing something in us. We can sense it. We want to gather together time and time again. This is why everybody comes out on a Wednesday night, right? We've had like 20-some people on Wednesday nights. I'm going, oh, my gosh, these people love the word of God. Sunday nights, we've had people come to love the word of God. Sunday mornings, you gather because you want to hear more of the word of God. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city, verse 44, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Because it was doing something for them. 
something that no other word they'd ever heard could. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw these crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke even more boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Get the connection there? The corollary is that eternal life can only come through the word of God. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles, for the word, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And verse 48 sums it up. And when the Gentiles heard this, meaning the word of God, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was glorified. Why? And because as many as were appointed to eternal life believed that day. They had heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. Their hearts were changed, and they rejoiced in the Lord that day. Only the Word of God can do that. And do you see how the Holy Spirit separated the ones who wanted to rise the dissension? Only the Word of God can bring that truth to people. It is there in that hunger for the Word of the Lord that we hear the gospel of our salvation, the Word of truth. We hear the preaching. It all comes together. The doctrine, the preaching, the work of the Holy Spirit. We're convicted. We're moved on. The Lord has worked in our hearts, and the true witness takes place. And what's it say there in verse 13? You see the next step in this? In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. You couldn't believe in him without that. You had to have that work in your heart. That belief comes. The ability to repent of your sins, the ability to see Jesus as Lord can only come whenever the word does that work. Belief is the evidence of the Spirit's work and the positive uh, for the believer, just as judgment is for the unbeliever. It is the belief that these folks, um, uh, uh, that, that they witnessed to in Acts 13 that showed that they were the believers that day. It was the walking away that the Jews had done that showed that they had not believed what they had heard today. Belief builds in you and it reveals truth in the believer for the rest of your life. It's sanctifying, it's conforming you to the image of God and it's creating love within you. It's our faith that moves in all these things. We live by faith. We're sanctified by faith. We overcome this world by faith. We'll be saved by faith. We are knit together into one glorious body, the church. All of it is by faith. That is the witness that remains. And that witness, the day that you believe, becomes something much bigger. This changes the world, beloved. What you will ultimately do with the word of truth that's been given you when you were by grace given the gospel and its efficacious power changed your sinful will from death to life, right? From dark to light. It's the difference in this world today. Do you understand that? The witness that you have within you is the witness that's in this world today. It's that down payment. It's that understanding that there's something different about you that other people see. You have a belief in Scripture that you just can't quite let go of. It empowers you. It allows you to live your life. It allows you to see things in a different way. Listen, beloved, you have truth because of that. And therefore, you have a responsibility. You were brought from dark to light from, by the word of truth. Be a beacon for the light in all of life. Use that word to tell others the good news that brings life. Give them the word that was given to you. You were given the ability to discern truth. Use it for good. Push back on the dark. Stand in the gap. 
The Holy Spirit has moved, right? And cannot be removed or revoked or rescinded from you. That witness is eternal until the day that you take possession and stand before your Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, the world needs you. It needs Christians. It needs strong Christians. It don't need Christians that just gather on Sunday and say our amens and go out and change for the rest of the week. We need Holy Spirit-filled, inspired believers. And this church needs you. This church needs men. Men who have believed the word of truth, been changed by the word of truth, and will stand up for the word of truth. This church, this city, our families, our wives, our country, our state, our nation, all of it need men of truth. Our culture is desperate for this word of truth. It's dying. Haven't you looked out around and seen the death that is right, just right outside these doors? Our culture is literally dying before our eyes. Our culture is desperate for the word of truth. Beloved, if we had just, listen to me, you're going to think I'm crazy this morning. You, you, please tell me that on the way out. I'd love to talk to you about that. If we had just 1,000 young men who believe this word of truth, we could change this state. We planted 1,000 new churches with 150 people each. That'd be 150,000 in the Delaware River Valley of about 9 million people. We'd have a good start right there. We could, make, we could make an impact for Christ. And you say, Pastor, you're a dreamer. <laughs> that could never happen. I think you're underestimating the word of truth. That's what I would tell you if you want to talk about it on the way out. The true word, the true work, the true witness. Beloved, the true witness, what happened when, when those 120 people in the upper room there in the book of Acts? Jesus, remember what Jesus said? He said, you stay and you wait. For the promise of the Lord, right? Does that sound like what we're reading in Ephesians 1.13? Stay and wait till you hear the word of truth, the promise from the Lord. And when he comes upon you, my power will come upon you and you will be witnesses. Where? Just in the church on Sunday morning? No. To the whole world. We know what happened. Chapter 2, the Spirit came. Peter stands on verse 14 there with the 11 apostles and he preaches. He preaches right downtown Jerusalem. They just killed Jesus, and he said, you're the ones that killed Jesus. That's why you're sinners. You need to turn away from that. He preached the word of truth. He preached the perfect gospel. He preached doctrine to him that day. And what's it say? About 3,000 souls were added to the church. Beloved, you have that same spirit to guide you, to assure you, and to empower you to do that work and to seal you for that work and for that day. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But let it fly, baby. Let it loose. He wants to work through you. He wants to work through Park Bible Baptist Church, and he wants to see other people come to know the word of truth because of our work. Uh, and you say, Pastor, you're a dreamer. That can never happen. We can't change a town. Yes, we can, beloved. You underestimate the power of the word of truth if you think that. It changed you. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2. You read it? Let's scup ahead here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. 
It saved you. It can save your it can save your family. It can save your friends at work. It can save this city. And it can save this state. God will not let his word fall to the ground, beloved. Not one jot or tittle. He who promised is faithful. In what is known as one of the largest refugee crises the world has ever known, the only one bigger was World War II, God was working to bring about his will in a way that shows the incredible work and power of the gospel and the word of truth. It was 1947, and the partition in India was taking place. And I know you probably don't know what that is, but it's simple. I'll explain it to you. The partition, as it's called, divided then-British-controlled India into two separate sovereign countries, the Republic of India, and as we know it today, and the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Prior to 1947, it was all one country. Then the partition came, and all those who were believing Muslims had to stay in Pakistan, and believing Hindus and Sikhs were forced to move into what we know as India proper today. And during that period, a friend of mine, a ministry partner that I've known now for several years, a friend of mine's grandfather was just a young child in 1947. He was a young child in a wealthy land-owning farming family, Hindu family, that lived just across the border into Pakistan before the partition. They had a lot of acreage of land. They were wealthy by those days' standards, but when the partition came, they either had to leave or become Muslim. So they left. They left because they were Hindu, and that's what they believed. They were forced from their land and from their farmland into India with little more than what they could carry on their backs and their ox carts. They lost everything. They lost all of their land, all of their wealth. They were devastated, but they began to make the journey to where they would finally settle in India. Begrudgingly, as they began that long trek, but as they approached where the new border would be, where Pakistan would now meet India, they were greeted that day by International Mission Board missionaries. And from these missionaries, they received food, clothes, you know, just the basic human needs. But they also got a gospel track of the book of Luke containing the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord. And there was just one problem. That gospel track was in English and nobody could read English. Right? But that didn't stop the Lord. It would just be several years later. And Paul's father, who was a part of that work and moving as just a very young child, with his grandfather that day, would grow up. Now they'd migrated all the way across India to the Himalayan mountain range to a beautiful place called Chandigarh, India. It's the most beautiful city in the world, I believe. I'm biased, though. And Paul's father would grow to about the sixth grade, and they would be able to afford um, an education in a Catholic school. And it's in that Catholic school he learned to read English. And when he learned to read English, he went home, and his grandfather still had that track, and they read that track, and from that track that was left to them so many years earlier because of what seemed to be the greatest evil that had ever happened to them, the Lord converted every soul in that family. Now, it doesn't stop there, because when I go and serve in, the, in India, this is where I go. 
the First Baptist Church there in Chandigarh, it's a big building. You could set three of these in it. Sometimes when I teach Greek and try to work through the same Hindi uh, that some of the earlier missionaries had converted their Bible into, there's 400 men there for my studies. That church today, founded in the early 70s by Paul's father, now supports more than 700 churches in northern India. Beloved, do you think God's not doing that work? You're wrong. That same word, that same work, his same will, is bringing those he who he chose before the foundation of the world under the blood of Jesus Christ to salvation through the work of the Spirit in their own time and place. He'll do that work, whether it's through our obedience or someone else's. Beloved, that power is in the world because the word of truth is in the world. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come this morning. I'm amazed by the attention of your people. I know that they love you. I know that they understand that you sent your Holy Spirit to come and work a special work in their lives, to take out that heart of stone, to bring in that heart of flesh so that we could that we would make no other choice once we saw who for you are, even the first fruits of that work of the Spirit was the faith to believe you. Father, I, I'm, I'm humbled that I stand in front of such a good group of people that understand that. But if there's one here this morning, Father, that don't, my hope is that they heard in these words the doctrine of salvation and work of the Holy Spirit that today you've done that work in their hearts. My further hope is that we'll take that witness, new for some, more mature in others, and that we'll not hide it, but that we'll take it into the communities around us, and it will bear that same fruit, even as we've heard from Paul and the work that you've done in India and seen how China and India and Russia and Africa how Christianity is exploding because of the unstoppable gospel. Father, I pray your heart for Pennsville, for Park Bible Baptist Church in South Jersey, that you would give us tremendous strength and the churches here that work in the true doctrine, the true word, that you would give us tremendous strength to witness to this community and have an impact for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our final hymn this morning.